Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, wow, this is going to be a great show, catching up with Scott Guthrie. Uh, it's hard to believe that he was on episode 39. Yeah. A long time. A lot of shows, like 10 shows with him. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing. Yep. It's a, it's a great story all by itself. It is. So for Better Know Framework today, I thought I would take a look back in time. All right. Play that funky music. <laughs> Play that's a funky music, a white the boys. That's a boogaloo till we puke. <laughs> so, all right, man, what do you got? Yeah, so this is from ASP.NET 2.0, an article written in December 2006. Oh man, which was probably rewritten because I think it's even older than that, isn't it? Um, ASP.NET Browser Registration Tool, ASP.NET underscore regbrowsers.exe. Oh, I remember this stuff. I'm trying to forget, but... Uh, but yeah, it's, this is from like .NET 1, 1. 1.1, so this is 2002, 2003. Right, in ASP.NET version 1.1, the, the machine config file, remember that? It was hiding <laughs> somewhere in your Windows yes. folder, um, in Windows system. That contained a section called Browser Caps or Browser Capabilities, a series of XML entries that define the configurations for various browsers. And versions they, of browsers. And too, versions of right? browsers based yeah. on what they could and couldn't do. So this reminds me of, you know, we talked to Jeff Richter and he's like, oh, yeah, Windows is full of, you know, if running Quicken, then, and then I'm, not this. If AutoCAD, I'm not saying then this. I'm not saying it's Quicken or AutoCAD, but he's l literally saying there's, you know, switch statements in oh, the no, C it code. It was if AutoCAD, without a doubt. <laughs> okay, well, whatever. <laughs> you know, if the user is playing this software or using this software, this version or whatever, you know, we got to plug the holes a little bit differently. But uh, yeah, that was the. There's so much complexity in early .NET that we had to deal with. Well, and it was also trying to do it the right way. Like, what was the right way to say which browser supports JavaScript, which one doesn't? Like, yeah, we have better ways of doing this now. And also, I think we have more of a monoculture. Those early days of browsers were way more fragmented. Yeah, so much, so much easier to be a, a .NET developer in. 2021 I don't disagree, just being a web developer you know those yeah. early days of web development were hard yeah rough stuff but great rough. uh blast from the past though friend yeah we'll anyway. see what scott has to say about that <laughs> when he comes on but uh, who's talking to us today mr campbell speaking of jeff richter you must have been channeling my thinking because i grabbed a comment off of show 1747 which ah. we did in mid last year in 2021 and we're, Jeff's got a new role these days, right? He helps deal with the Azure APIs, making sure they work across all the different stacks and so mm -hmm. forth and being very careful about changes. I thought it was a fantastic conversation. Brilliant, brilliant guy who's been involved for so yep. long. And Jess Kovic had this comment. He said, I pulled out an old Windows phone the other week because, of course, we talked to Jeff about Windows phones at that right. time. And I was blown away with how awesome it looked and felt. Tiles. I miss this. <laughs> Yeah. I miss it too, man. I totally get it. Yeah. I've been using a very uninspiring Android device for a few years now, and I'm disappointed that Windows 11 looks just like Android. Mm. It does kind of. Well, yeah. And, and I thought this was a really relevant comment uh, because of that whole conversation we had about being cross-platform and so forth. But also, you know, part of what made those tiles work in that, v that version of WinPhone, WinPhone 7, was Silverlight. 
That's right. And our friend, Mr. Guthrie, helped uh, lead. And, and I remember talking to him about, we've got a subset of Silverlight to make the phone work. It changed after that. But boy, the metaphors in Windphone are still yeah. great metaphors. That, yeah, I, like I always say, the, the contact-based UI was such a brilliant thing yeah. for, and I still use an iPhone. And I still swear every time I have to go to the contact app to find a contact and the yeah. phone app to talk, to call someone. And I uh, just upgraded to a pixel six and somehow the integration for contacts failed. And so it meant that all of my WhatsApps and signals and uh, text messages, so forth, just had phone numbers, no names uh, and the wrestling match to convince the contacts app that populates all that stuff within Android to take it from Office 365. I mean, mm. I got it finally, but yeah. it's a struggle. Yeah. Uh, and it's very, it's interesting that we're fighting that problem in 2022. Yep. And this is a conversation about a product from 2010, you mm. know, 2011. Certainly so, innovative. Anyway, uh, Jess, thank you so much for your comment. All part of our nostalgia this month <laughs> with right. the 20th anniversary. And 20th anniversary for us, too, friends, in right. August. In right? August, it'll be our 20th anniversary. I think Although, we're planning a party in um, Kentucky. Is it Code Palooza? In, Code Palooza. Louisville? Yeah, I think that's what's going to end up happening, too. I think there's going to be much bourbon there. Yeah, and you and I are going to be together for Dev Intersection in April. Yeah. So uh, I'll part. And again, it's like this is the 20th anniversary year for .NET. For .NET Rocks, you mm -hmm. know, all of those things. So, and all those NDCs will be there, too. Yeah, we'll be all as part many, of it. As so, many, many as we can. Jess, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet complete with Twitter caps. <laughs> The capabilities of Twitter? Are there any besides <laughs> dissent? Only dissent. <laughs> Twitter client caps. I'd like to see. Uh, you know what I hate about the iPhone, at least Twitter app? Hmm. Everything. <laughs> I No, I hate when you click. You have to click at certain places in a message to find oh. what you want. Like, I want to find the whole thread with all the comments. But sometimes you click on a comment. You don't get the, the context. Yeah, It's just dumb. Don't Bad. be dumb, Twitter. Could be better. Yeah. So use it. I use my, you know, desktop Twitter app and it's great. Yeah. But the phone app leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, true enough. Okay. And that brings us to uh, Scott Guthrie, patiently waiting in the wings. As executive vice president of the Microsoft Cloud Plus AI group, Scott is responsible for Microsoft's cloud computing fabric, artificial intelligence platform, and the company's digital transformation strategy. And this spans products and services like Microsoft Azure, the global cloud computing platform, Microsoft business applications, including the automated business process capabilities of Dynamics 365, low-code and no-code tools in the Power Platform, and healthcare-specific data platforms and AI products and services, as well as mixed reality with HoloLens and Microsoft Mesh. It also includes a rich set of developer tools with Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, and GitHub, core commerce capabilities infrastructure, and compliance solutions across the Microsoft Cloud. You know, no big whoop. <laughs> so not that busy, that's what we're not, saying. Not, not busy, busy at all. <laughs> hey, Scott, how are you? Welcome back, friend. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Five years since the last time you did a show. Too long. Has it really been five years? 
maybe four, four years. Okay. I can't do that. Oh, yeah. I still remember <laughs> yeah. doing that show in NBC. Yeah. We came, yeah. You came into the booth, sat down. We just started talking. Well, you had just got your hands around Azure, I think, at the time or so. And you were just talking about changing that was things. in the first year. Yeah. I was probably. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was a long time. Well, all right, Scott, let's go way back to episode 39 in October 2003 on ASP.NET 2.0. How long has it been since you thought about the uh, ASP.NET browser registration tool? (laughs) (laughs) You're just bringing back it before we get started. The browser caps.ini file. And I I, I had not thought about that in in at least a decade, but uh, (laughs) that brings back memories and um, trying yeah. to keep track of all the different, there were a lot more browsers back then, a lot more capabilities. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was, <laughs> well, I, I think it was actually a lot fewer capabilities, but they were all different between browsers. So you never had to know. It was all yeah. different. It was not like, a lot of uniformity back then. My goodness. No. DHTML. I haven't thought of DHTML in a long time. Oh, don't say the D stands for dumb. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, with this 20-year anniversary, there must be a lot of uh, looking back and reverie, things like this. So just we, we just wanted to play along. And uh, I know I feel old. I don't know about Richard and you, but, uh, man. It's kind of crazy to imagine. I mean, there's not that many technologies that 20 years later are still mainstream and… And getting better. And getting better and, while, yeah. and, and growing Driving. in popularity. I mean, it's… You know, and we, you know, it's 20 years from the day we officially released version 1.0. Right. But I mean, it's, it's like 24 years, 25 years since uh, we started writing code. And that's, that's kind of, that's, that's mind boggling for me as someone who was part of those early days of just, uh, if you told me 25 years later, would we be doing a show talking about the millions of new people using it? I'd, probably scratch my head because there's there's not a lot of other frameworks out there that that have that level of endurance and it's you know a lot of it's testament to the community and um you know just the amazing group of people uh that support it when we talked to anders i think it was richard yeah uh, he was talking about the 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 difficulty of transforming net from a microsoft only technology to an open source technology with all of the little pieces that had to with a license had to be changed and figured out that must've been just like a, an, a, a harrowing experience for you. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, I don't know if I'd say harrowing, but it was, hmm. it, it was, you know, it's, it's funny kind of, we kind of just now na- just sort of assume things are open source now, but you hmm. know, uh, yeah, certainly 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a story I have that will be in the book that I've written parts of, but it's still not finished, of uh, Hunter and a few other folks all sort of considering their sort of reboot of .NET in the early aughts and going to you and Xander and saying, we're thinking about, you know, how to take this thing forward and and you and Xander pushing them to actually, have you thought about open source? You want to do, like, it seems to me that, you and Jason had come to a point where you recognized how important open source was going to be in there, and you really wanted the team to be there too. Do you? I don't know if you recall that event, but you- yeah, there was a couple of meetings. You know, I mean, I, there, yeah, I think uh, I don't know if I remember the exact meeting, but uh, and I think this is true for a lot of programming frameworks and languages. Is you know, ten years in, yeah, hit you know, middle age, if you will, if you're a programming framework. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or old age even. Uh, and, you know, if you look at other web frameworks out there, they kind of hit similar points. And I think we were at a point, ten, you know, 10 years ago where I felt like, well, there's two ways we can kind of do this. One is we can just sort of slowly watch it drop in usage and have something else replace it, or we can do something bold. And I think it was a combination of, we sort of decided a couple of things. One, make it open source. Two, let's actually make it cross-platform and, mm-hmm. and have it work not just on Windows, but Linux and Mac and every system. And three, you know, in some ways, uh, and this was driven really by, you know, the, the .NET team. This was not my idea, which is let's be bold and be willing to kind of drop, not compatibility, because we'll always keep the old framework around, but, you know, some of the, the .NET core reboot of, you know, let's make a couple of surgical changes to make sure that we get better agility and we kind of set it up for the next 10 years going forward. And, you know, there were some library changes and other things in terms of that transition to kind of help again with the open sourcing and with the cross-platform nature. Um, and then at the same time, we also decided to create VS Code and do .NET or VS Community Edition. And I think that combination of all those things was kind of this giant surge of adrenaline, 10, you know, now it's almost 10 years ago um, and uh, or eight years ago, I guess, is when some of those things came to light. But, uh, you know, that, that I think set us up. And that's partly why when you look at the health and vibrancy today, it's it's still growing. Um, I don't think it would have been if we hadn't made some of those those decisions. With the rise of Azure, did that have an influence on the open sourcing of .NET? Uh, you know, this sort of the, the um, Azure becoming like a, a profit center and uh, making it less about Windows and more about Azure. Yeah, I mean, it helped a little bit. I mean, it, it, you know, I do think ultimately companies make technology decisions and investment decisions. Yeah, at the end of the day, it is tied to business model in some way. I mean, there's, there's obviously there's, you know, philanthropic things that companies do, but at the end of the day, if you look at kind of from a long-term perspective, it's rare for a company to do something completely irrational over the long run when it takes people to work on it. Right. Hey, I got a great idea. Let's all these products we're charging for, let's give them away now. And, And so you do kind of, you know, I think it's, it's not, it's not like a bad thing, but it's just, I think you want to be cognizant of that. And, right. you know, there's the kind of saying in advertising, which is like, oh, it's free because you're the product. Right. Um, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> it's not ever really completely free. And I think, you know, with cloud, you know, with, with, you know, even taking .NET and open sourcing in a world where all of our money came from selling a thing called Windows, mm. you know, giving away .NET for free or making it open source was a little scary because, you know, it, it suddenly means that the thing that we make money on, we can't fund all the things we want to do, including .NET. And part of what's, you know, nice about the cloud is it changed the economics where, you know, we have more developers, we make more cloud revenue in the long right. run. doesn't mean they all have to use Azure, but it, it means that if you've got a, a vibrant uh, developer community, you know, that's goodness for you long run. And so that, that definitely gave us more flexibility to kind of think through and that's partly why like we embrace linux as much as we do sure, sure. Um, now and as we embrace open source and, and other frameworks as well you know and historically we we, we very only net and now we support other languages and frameworks too and yeah i think at the end of the day that that's good for the community and that's good for everyone and because everyone. it's open source it, it's it also means that if we ever are no longer a good steward you know people can, can always pick it up and run with it yeah. And so, I mean, I think it's, it, I do think that the Azure and the cloud rise, you know, gave us more flexibility and more, um, 
permission to kind of be bolder in terms of our aspirations of what we wanted to do in the developer. It, it strikes me that you're more that Microsoft's more aligned with developers ever before because we create consumption for cloud and you only get paid when it gets consumed. The old days where you were selling a box of software to my CTO that I would maybe use or not, it was a little less alignment, right? It was sort of a once a year kind of sales deal on a volume license mm -hmm. agreement or an MSDN uh, you know, subscription. Now it's day in, day out. As I build things and they get pushed into Azure, that's your revenue stream and obviously providing benefit to my company. That's why we're running it in the first place. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of benefits with cloud. You know, it's it's. Um, you know, I was talking to a, a, a customer or hopefully potential customer earlier this morning, and you know, just even explained. You know, one of the nice things about like Azure is you don't actually buy it. Uh, you know, it's it's a consumption based model, and so mm -hmm. you know, if you if you don't use it, you don't pay as anything, and if you use it, you pay by the second, and it has a really nice uh, incentive, which is everything we can do to make you successful. Um, Helps us and helps yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, and if we ever stop making you successful and you, your usage declines, it hurts us. And so it, it kind of, it sort of perfectly aligns what is the customer or developer want and what, you know, our incentives are, you know, it's, and, and that I think is very different than the traditional enterprise model where sometimes people will try to sell you something, whether you needed it or not, or whether you used it or not. Um, and yeah, again, that's, that's, that's one, I think of the nice things about cloud, not just for Microsoft, but for other cloud-based companies is I think it does mean that, um, developer success or customer success is perfectly aligned with business model. And, um, you know, again, it just means that it, it also, the onus is on us to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure that developers are happy and successful and building great things. And, and that's, that's good for everyone. Amen. I, I want to go back a little further. Like we were talking about that sort of moment where that emerged turns into .NET Core and so forth over in the next few years, which that 2012, 2013, 2014 period. But you were actively pushing towards open source with Coplex and things in like 2006, 2007, the great, well, we called it on .NET Rocks, Scott Guthrie's Ninja Army. And you went on that hiring spree, Phil Hack, Rob Connery, uh, and Scott Hanselman. Hanselman I mean, yeah. all in the same month, I think. It's like September, October. And of course, he, and then you all did a book together too, because he did the MVC book. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think I hired them all actually within about 60 days of each other. And, and that was, those were some really good hires. Uh, and there yeah. were many others as well that, that mm -hmm. again, you know, it, it sounds obvious now, like, we should open source and be cross-platform. But it, you know, at the time, again, it was a little heretical. And so sometimes when you want to change the system, you kind of need to bring in fresh perspectives. And so I, I don't think we would have been as successful or would have been able to drive the culture change even that was needed. You know, if we hadn't brought in some of the people you mentioned and others who kind of, you know, were real believers in it and, mm. and we, you know, we're going to lean in to make it successful. And, and you know, it's, it's um, uh, you know, sometimes... Culture change is easier when you have some change agents that you introduce into the system. Was that your thinking at the time? It's like these guys are already in that culture. Let's make them part of the company and, and see what influence they have. A little bit. I mean, I, I mean, they were great for other reasons as well. But but yeah, I mean, I, they're I, phenomenal web developers without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, but but also in terms of just you know, and I think also that that you know one of the things that that I, I'm a big believer in you know, and I try to do it with all the the things I've worked on. Um, you know, it's the more customer connected you can be and, and the less sort of like just build it in isolation. 
uh, but instead really be, you know, listen to the customers, listen to the community and, you know, be part of the community because you can't really listen if you're not part of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, why, you know, even today or, or pre-COVID, I would do these, you know, red shirt dev tours where I kind of go around the world and show stuff off is, you know, both to try to, um, you know, have people learn about what we're doing, but more importantly, so I can listen. Yeah. And there's nothing better than actually showing someone something uh, or a developer or something in an audience and, and having them ask really hard questions for me to learn uh, what they're thinking and, and where my stuff needs to get better. And so, you know, that, that's, I think each of the people you also mentioned there, you know, kind of live that experience as well and, and deeply believe it too. There was a time when you, we, I could find you at a conference on the floor in a scrum of devs writing code and debating it. I don't yep. think you get to do that very much anymore, Scott. Well, pretty COVID, I would still try to occasionally. I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, I'm trying to think when the last sort of red shirt tour I did was, mm-hmm. but it, it was still even, I don't know, 2019 or, mm-hmm. or 2020, I was doing actually 2019. I remember I, I, we did dinner in Poland, actually. Right. Yeah. That's right. It did the dev sound. December of 2020, right before the world fell apart. And yeah. yeah. I was on stage writing code in front of. Yeah, you were. That's right. But it, it, but you don't tend to sit in the scrums anymore, but we did get it. I think you had a nice cluster of folks around you after that, after that keynote and chatted for a while. So it's, you know, I enjoy that. And, you know, and it's, um, you know, that's, that's fun. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I still enjoy that and get energy from it. It's, it's great. I find it funny when I'm talking to other folks inside of Microsoft and they quote you about, don't tell me about the feature you want to build. Tell me what the customers you've talked to about that feature and what they want to do. With it. <laughs> Good. Okay. Like, Wait, I know that line. I know who said that line originally. <laughs> so Scott, speaking of innovations, can you name three of your favorite or maybe you, what you think are some of the most important innovations that have happened in the history of .NET that you have overseen? Uh, um. In terms of I mean, bang for buck and, you know, changing the landscape and all. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think certainly, um, I, I think Anders deserves this credit the most is, is C sharp. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Sure. Just, and, and I'm, I'm continually amazed with just how that language evolves and gets better. I mean, I, I think when we first did it, people were like, well, okay, it's a similar, you know, is it just Java, you know, with some different syntax and right. It's watching the way that, you know, whether it's link or whether it's generics or, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's really hard to take a single language and evolve it consistently with new features and have it feel cohesive and please everybody and please everyone and, and do it over 20 years. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, um, you know, it's like, if you ever watch like a movie series or a movie trilogy, you're always like, well, I love the first three, two movies, the third one, eh, not so much. And then, you know, the, the fifth one got weird and, you know, it, it's just, it's hard to build that continuity, whether it's books or movies or languages. And, you know, I do think C sharp is one of these, you know, just beautiful things that have gotten more, you know, consistent, it stayed consistent throughout and yet it's gotten richer. Um, you know, I think the way we built ASP.NET in the early days, in particular, the extensibility framework turned mm-hmm. out really important. I, I uh, thought that web forms was incredibly important because of your existing audience mm. who came from web forms trying to figure out web development. Like it in that context, it made a tremendous amount of sense at a price 
which became greater over time. Yeah, and I think I think the thing. I mean, I think web forms had a lot of uniqueness to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say with a laugh, uh, yeah, in a good way. I mean, it, 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 it. There were just so many people who couldn't figure out the web that it helped helped make it possible. And then you know, and then for a certain class of applications, you know, even today, you know, or maybe not today, but but even for a long time of of if you have a very heavy UI centric app. You, know, you have to write a lot of JavaScript sometimes today to kind of have all of the things that web forms did. Yeah. And so again, it was it had its flaws and it was not perfect, as nothing is, but it 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 actually, you know, it's even when I look at it and think about it, it, it was kind of for at the time of as IT was trying to figure out how do we move from very heavy win, you know, Windows you know, VB and 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 you know traditional Windows UI. Um, you know, again, it, it, especially in a day before, if you remember the first version of ASP.NET did not require JavaScript. And so right, yes. what we did with web forms, it actually worked with JavaScript disabled in your browser because <laughs> that was still a thing at the time. Yeah, it's right. amazing that it actually worked that way. And it, and, um, <laughs> you know, and also I think the, the two things I think we did get right with web forms as well, which is, you know, the underlying ASP.NET mechanisms, IHTP handlers and IHTP modules at the time, right. you know, were designed so that it was UI agnostic. And so when we later introduced ASP.NET MVC or Web API, it didn't require kind of blowing up ASP.NET. It actually, you know, cleanly layered on top of the core mechanisms. And that was fairly radical relative to previous web frameworks where typically it was all incestuously kind of tied together. To the point where people didn't believe it. I remember Hanselman doing a show with us saying, listen, listen, you can just add an MVC component to this web forms page. It'll work. You're like, no, (laughs) (laughs) that can't be true. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, that was a, that was an explicit, um, Goal partly because we you know, we were still playing around with the whole notion of controls early on, right? And so you know, candidly, we kind of needed that extensibility because we kept you know tweaking. You know, at one point, we were using you're going to use XSLT and XML in a deeper way, and at some point, found like that was just too awkward. And so, just getting the layering right was useful because I, you know, especially in the early days, I was kind of like we could be wrong, and um, even on the V1, and so. I think that helped. And I do think the the other thing that we got right in a big way with ASP.NET, if I look at version one, was we didn't have uh we didn't have state tied to a single instance of the server, which also, you know, now sounds obvious, but back then you your session object you used the session object a lot, and the session object was in proc and tied to a single machine. And the idea that that ASP.NET was by default stateless was, you know, again, now sounds obvious, but in, in 1998 did not sound as obvious. No, no. Right. And, and I made a lot of money on doing sessions where I changed that configuration file and suddenly, ta-da, your session is in a remote right. session somewhere, right? Like, You're a genius. That was magic. <laughs> I, still, I still run into websites occasionally uh, where, you know, like it's clear that they have like a, some session bug or something. Yes. It's like, oh, it just reset and the query, you know, your shopping cart's empty. And I always kind of scratch my head and say, oh my gosh, how is that possible in this day and age? But, you know, I do think that was a place where we, we got it right with ASP.NET yeah. um, that helped with the skill. Do you think Blazor is as much of an innovation uh, game changer today as ASP.NET was back then? It could be. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I think we'll see, I mean, we'll know that answer maybe in five or 10 years, but you know, it's, it's, I think it's certainly very, very innovative. 
Um, and I love seeing what everyone's building with it. So from that perspective, yes. Well, and talk about controls coming back in a big way. Like all of the component vendors have jumped on the Blazor bandwagon in a huge way. And yeah. I think very exciting for folks to see that sort of rally of that dynamic in. Although I wonder if it's very much a Microsoft community mindset. We've always had control suites if you're from that old school. Mm. And then we had a window there where it kind of was all raw, you know, villain JS and, and uh, spas. And now it's Blazor's brought that old style back. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's this constant battle that, you know, I think um, lots of client frameworks uh, as well as, you know, or lots of every UI framework, I think is, you know, is wrestled with, which is how do you create the right abstraction layer mm-hmm. of higher level functionality and do it in a way that composes and then does it in a way that you can kind of balance productivity with flexibility and, and right. all those things are, there's like tension <laughs> in the system for all those because, um, you know, the more productivity you build, typically the more kind of prescriptive and the more opinionated you need to be. And, and then, you know, some people don't like your opinions or your prescription. And so it's, it's a, it's a tough battle. I mean, I, I think blazer and being able to do it on the client side, um, helps with that tremendously mm-hmm. and still, you know, gives you that maximum flexibility in terms of portability, which people clearly want and need. So, I mean, I, I but I, you know, I think we will find that UI uh, is one of these things where every control that looks great today in 10 years, someone will have a slightly better idea. Um, and, uh, but I love the way that Blazor is built on web standards. And so it, it doesn't lock you into a client or it doesn't lock you into a browser or anything like that. And so I do think it has sort of enduring traction that, um, means that even if people might want to have a different look and feel of a control, the nice thing is the framework itself should be super powerful. Change platforms. You're not going to change the platform. The component model for me is, is the most exciting thing about blazer. I mean, I love where it can go on the server or the client, but, but the, you know, uh, binding, for example, is just so easy and like the least amount of ceremony possible for any kind of UI. And, and I just really, really love it. Gentlemen, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl and Richard here. As you may have heard, NDC is back, offering their incredible in-person conferences around the world. And we'd like to tell you about them. NDC Security Oslo has been rescheduled to April 3rd through the 6th. Go to ndc-security.com to register. NDC London has been rescheduled to May 8th through the 12th. Go to ndc-london.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is March 14th through the 17th. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto is happening April 24th through the 28th. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Minnesota is happening September 27th through the 30th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Yo. And there's our friend Scott Guthrie uh, in for a little nostalgic tour. Because when you started with the company, and I know this story, having talked to you about it many times, and you joined the NT Option Pack team, because that sounds like the most exciting group at Microsoft of them all. Oh, God. But that's where active server pages live. That's right. Yeah. 
you were, I mean, a top tier graduate at Duke University. You had you heard a pick of jobs at Microsoft. Why did you pick that? Well, it was not called the NT Option Pack team at the time. <laughs> <laughs> you make it sound like it was a, that was sort of a crazy name. Uh, that, that was a name that was foisted on us, I believe, like two weeks before we shipped the product. Right. By uh, the naming gods. By the naming, naming gods. Naming yeah. <laughs> I remember everyone went, what? Well, <laughs> um, um, but it was it was the IS team back then. And okay. Yeah, it, was, it was kind of, we had this sort of internet division, uh, which is kind of, Nostalgic. It's kind of like having an electricity division in the company. <laughs> uh, and um, but yeah, we had a, we had an internet division, and so it was our it was IE and IS were the two internet big products, and um, it was kind of it was kind of a fun wild group. I mean, it was 1997, so right you know, Windows 95 was just a few years old, and the notion of even having like a TCP/IP stack was still like radically new to build it into your operating system. I mean, I remember, you know, the year before you, you know, you'd have to kind of like down, you know, download us or buy a CD or floppy disk even. Yeah. Yeah. No, the TCP IP wasn't the default network stack for windows until David's Windows 2000. Was it? Yeah, it was windows 2000 was the first one that deep because it was, it defaulted net buoy until yeah. windows 2000. That was the first one went, Oh no, we installed TCP IP first. Now. Right. It's like, it really? was days, and it was it was kind of fun because it was a small group, and it was I think we shipped four pro yeah four products in two years. I mean, four major releases, and so right. it was you know it's now you know in a cloud world where we ship thousands of updates a day. It sounds pedestrian, but uh, you know at the time it was you know a lot of you know products only shipped every two or three years, and so yeah. this idea that we'd ship every few months to millions of people was kind of radical, hmm. and so it was it was a fun group, and it was a it was. Um, you know, it was an exciting time. And so that, that was why I joined and it was some crazy times, but, but good times. But as long as you were printing on media and had to ship that media, shipping more than, uh, you know, every other year was almost crazy. It was the internet that opened the door to that? Just download the new bits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, up until even like when we first shipped .NET, I mean, .NET and, and Visual Studio version 1.0 i mean it was a it was a big download i can't remember how many hundreds of megabytes but yeah. at the time like downloading hundreds of megabytes was a really big like day-long thing yeah um and uh and so you know the way you typically got even visual studio back then was on a dvd or cd yeah and um I, I still remember i think it was visual studio 1.0 i don't know if anyone's ever told you about this fun story of where we had a free trial edition that we were going to include on some magazine that's long since disappeared, but you know, they were going to like tape the CD onto the magazine. Cause that was how you, you did it. And, <laughs> wow. And we, we burned, I think a million or 2 million of these DVDs. Cause again, back then magazines had a lot of distribution yeah. and uh, we discovered about two weeks before they, they went to print that the, um, setup program had a bug oh and it had a time check and so by the time it was actually on the stands it was going to be expired oh, <laughs> oh no man <laughs> and so we had like two million i have no idea where these two million cds went coasters but, uh, they yeah we gave out a lot of coasters but you still <laughs> do, there's a landfill and uh-huh. um we had to throw them all away and redo it but i mean that was that was the you know it sounds archaeological now but that was kind of like what the State of the art was back then. Yeah. I remember a story of you and Mark Anders, and was it you guys that brought ASP to ASP.net? And it was like over a weekend or something, or 
What was that story? I'm not remembering it. Richard probably does. Oh, it's the story of you prototyping a, a what would eventually become ASB.net over Christmas after the team That's had shipped Studio. Yeah, yeah, we shipped. Yeah, we shipped uh, IS four and Visual, and Visual Studio six, I think, or yeah. maybe six. Yeah. that just shipped in and um, November of ninety eight, I think. I think it was actually ninety November ninety seven or November ninety seven, right? Yeah, and and um, yeah, and so Mark and I were working on uh, what became ASP.NET, mm. and it was you know, very much it was like working on. I mean, it was a whiteboard, and we were you know we were we were originally thinking of of kind of like a version of classic ASP that uh, which was less than a year old at that point, you know, and so it was it was we were thinking of small changes and tweaks, you know, like a new object with a couple more methods. And uh, it was the original idea. And, you know, as we talked to people, we realized there was an opportunity for something bigger. And it there was a long list of things people wanted fixed uh, or different. And, and they couldn't articulate what they wanted. They just sort of said, like, oh, you know, here's where I have pain today. And it was, you know, some degree of componentization. People felt like, God, I have all the spaghetti code mm. that I end up writing. And, and it, it's so unstructured. And at some point, it becomes unwieldy. People wanted... Um, you know, back then when you wanted to deploy a DLL, you had to reboot your web server because yeah. all the DLLs were locked. The uh, shadow copy yeah. feature was like life-saving. Uh, you know, the configuration files, there was no configuration. It was all in this thing called the metabase, uh, which was this sort of binary file that occasionally got corrupted. And, you know, there was a bunch and and, you know, there were ASP had, um, session dependency. So right. like if you wanted to go across multiple web servers, you were kind of out of luck. And so there are a bunch of things that people were struggling with. And Mark and I were, you know, sitting in our offices, kind of brainstorming ideas and writing things on the whiteboard. And at some point he said, yeah, hey, we should write a prototype. And he said, why don't you make, you know, why don't you do it actually? And, and, you know, and so I kind of went over Christmas and, and cobbled together, you know, it was really a prototype. I mean, it wasn't like production code at all. This, did was, the CLR exist at this point? No, it didn't really. I mean, basically, there was a separate group starting to think about the CLR, but I, I built the prototype in a combination of C++. It was an ISAPI. Uh, I haven't thought of ISAPI in a long time, but it, which was the IS native extensibility mechanism. And then, yep. um, yeah, I had to build my own thread pool and stuff like that. I remember and then, Ole um, ISAPI DLL was the most popular download from Carl and Gary's website. <laughs> yes, but it only has I had threading issues, and so That's I couldn't right. use Department that. Threading. I, had do, I had to. I used the Java VM, which had an Ole. It had a com interface, and then I I had my roommate at the time uh, that I shared my apartment with uh, worked on the, the the com team, and he had or a, the Neptune team back then, uh, and he had a custom version of JavaScript that happened to support Java extensibility through com. And so I kind of cobbled this thing together yeah. where I built these com objects in either C++ or Java. And I hosted the JavaScript runtime and, and then ran it in the C++ ISAPI. And it was, it was, it, it had a component model. So I would parse the file and I was looking for server tags and, and I had events because it was in JavaScript. And so I could fire things and, you know, you could start to simulate this notion of like a control framework mm. and, and then you could make a change and save it and it would just work. And, um, you know, it, it, it 
you know, what we shipped was quite different still, but it, it had some of the basics there that we could start playing around with. And what was the scripting language? Like what would the developer working in that script? It was JavaScript at the time. So it was like server-side events in JavaScript, right. but it was kind of like Java-esque JavaScript. Yeah. Meaning it had a notion of classes and, and then you built your controls in Java. And so I did have like a class library for base classes for Java, mm-hmm. uh, which was Java based back then. Right. And, and, it, and it was, and Microsoft was shipping their own version of Java that was J like 1.1. Yeah. And so, you know, it was enough that you could actually do a demo and get people's feedback and people like, you know, liked a lot of it. And so we came back in like January 98 and started showing it to people and built enthusiasm. And at some point in, in 98, I can't remember exactly what month. We connected with the team that was then working on what became the common language runtime. And they said, hey, we've got this language runtime that supports not just Java, but would support multiple languages. And and then, you know, bumped into Anders on the tool side who said, hey, I'm thinking about this new language. You know, so cool. Which was then called Cool, and it became C Sharp. And it just sort of all of this came together. And we said, we should, you know, we should build something. And, and you know, that became what what became .NET 1.0 eventually. I mean, there was lots of other gyrations, yeah. but it, it that was sort of the incubus of these three separate teams, the tools team, the language runtime team, and the web team kind of uh, building something and independently and then finding each other. Well, I think because by the time you were demonstrating that in 1998, that first prototype that, you, that you'd built, the first, the lawsuit over Java had already started. Like it, it, it was at the early days, but it, it started at the end of 97. So I got to imagine you show off a thing with Java and everybody likes it. It's like, love it. Really can't use Java. <laughs> like, that's yeah, a problem. It was, it was super popular for about a month. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and, then, and then the lawsuit happened and then everyone was like, oh, uh. could you write it somewhere else and, or somehow else? And, you know, and, and originally, you know, I, we wrote it not because we were trying to, you know, uh, you know, at the time, you know, the funny thing is just, you know, can things change? The idea that you could write server code in Java or .NET was considered impossible in 1998. Right. If you remember, Java was all about running applets inside a browser. Yep. You know, EJB and Java server runtimes, like none of that really existed. And so um, even when we did ASP.NET, you know, and bet on the common language runtime, everyone said, well, CLR is really about client apps. It's, it's not really probably going to work for server apps, is it? Right. And, you know, up until the day we shipped, there was still tremendous skepticism, both inside the company and outside the company around, you know, garbage collection on a server. No way. Is that Seems crazy? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, now we sort of take it for granted. But um, at the time that was, that was like, you know, flying toasters and, and <laughs> um, you know, landing on Mars. I mean, it was just considered science fiction. Yeah. Well, and and a part of this great story is a conversation I had with Xander around what happened putting .NET into SQL Server to actually hunt down and make the CLR incredibly robust. Uh, yeah, right. That by version two, it was enterprise grade, quote unquote. That the, the debugging tools that existed in SQL Server allowed them to really pursue stability in the CLR at such a deep level. Yeah, it, give it to the it, SQL team; they'll kick its butt. They well, yeah, it's a, it's a great story. It's Xander's story, but it's about like that the tools that SQL Server uses to analyze for reliability were so incredibly detailed 
that they were just able to find things that were really hard to find running .NET in Windows, running it in the SQL context made the difference. And we all benefited from that in 2.0, that suddenly here was this, this is the one you can run on the server for months. Well, yeah. Especially for scaling. I think especially for scaling, the, the thing that was nice about ASP.NET 1.0, or one of the decisions we made, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but we, we had this notion of out of process, mm -hmm. you know, classic right. ASP, um, when we first had it in 1997, only ran inside the web server process. And so yeah. if the IS process ever went down, you know, you were hard down and there was no way to even reboot it without some, you know, poor human having to go in and log in and say, restart, let's start IS. Yeah. Um, uh, W3. Oh, no. See, oh, no. I had that. I had that script, man. I ran that script a lot. Yeah. So we, 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 didn't see that. we sort of said like, it's, it, it we're probably going to have some crashes in the CLR. And so, uh, we decided every single request was going to run out of process in its own ASP.NET process. And that again, seemed like crazy at the time. And it had and its so own issues, right? I mean, we, now we have cross process communication barriers, like using yeah. name pipes. I remember one was, and then there was like memory mapped files. Yeah. I have not, things I've not thought <laughs> exactly. of in, in 20 years, but, uh, uh, and so, yeah, so when Jason tells that story on SQL, you know, the, the thing about SQL is SQL did not have a process model. Yeah. You, know, you had to run it in the actual database store. And so the good news, at least with ASP.NET 1.0, is we helped the CLR team find and fix a whole bunch of server bugs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, absolutely right. I mean, like SQL running it inside their main process had to take CLR reliability to a whole new level. Well, yeah. because there's a Pretty server smart. that is already under a lot of pressure, like is doing a lot of things and and needs to scale and so you know unlike where you have iis which has some clients and things sql servers like banging at that point and so yeah you know, there's a lot of great great pressure on it to to perform yeah and you know now it's it's kind of cool in the sense of you think of .NET running in you know millions of servers inside azure i mean it's you know it's probably in the time of this podcast we'll do i don't know 500 trillion transactions through .NET. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. it's sort of, it's sort of mm -hmm. the crazy load that it's handling now. So it, it, it's, uh, it's a, we're a long ways from just trying to, you know, have it be five requests per second inside ASP.NET. <laughs> but then were some drama days, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, again, I remember when we first did stress testing on .NET, um, you know, it was 2000 or 99. And, you know, it wouldn't last more than about 10 seconds before, you know, you'd have, I think we call them garbage collection holes, yeah. TC holes. Uh, and so, you know, just trying to, you know, which is a place where the garbage collector, because it was multi-threaded and you'd have multiple simultaneous server threads. It's kind of this constant tension of if you lock every thread every time you garbage collect, your performance would be terrible. But, you know, if, if you had any locking sequence that was out of base, then you deadlock and, you know, all your threads would get hung up. And so, you know, just finding and fixing those things was a journey in of itself. And, um, you know, th there were many a nights where, you know, we're kind of staring at the results, kind of figuring out like, are we going to be able to do this? And uh, <laughs> you know, again, the CLR team did a, you know, a fantastic job and, um, you know, we got it all working and it, it, it the rest is history, but it, it uh, you know, there were definitely moments along the path that you made you wonder. And now .NET has been rewritten Twice, three times, how many times? Like you know, just, just twice. Two versions, right? Yeah. Really. I mean one with they, core. They're 
there were a bunch of different open sourcing initiatives with Rotor and uh, the shared source initiatives and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't, I don't, what, did you have a lot of role in the decision to make .NET Core and it's just this, we're not going to use the old code, we're going to write fresh? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I, um, no, I mean, I would say, you know, the, the .NET team was the one who really drove .NET Core. Right. Uh, I want to make sure I give them the credit. Um, I think, I think I pushed on, we need to make it cross platform. Mm. Right. Um, and so you, probably, at that point, you're already on the working on Azure too. So you've definitely cross platforms big on your, on your agenda. Yeah. And I also, I just, I just realized, you know, and I kind of pushed the team and said, look, you know, we just got to look at, you're not going to get n- new developers if you're not open source and cross platform at that right. point. And, or, you know, you're not going to get as many new developers. And so, you know, just, I think, Setting the ambition, which is, look, we want everyone coming out of school or growing up to say, hey, I, you know, if, they, if they're great, they want them to be a great, to want to use .NET as their default. And so, you know, just embracing kind of what was, what they're looking for. Well, as soon as you say it needs to be cross-platform and open source, you know, there were some dependencies inside the full .NET framework on Windows that we'd have to clearly change. Right. Um, and, and that, I think, led to some of the thinking that became .NET Core. But, you know, the, the actual which libraries and how to structure it, you know, that that's something the team really drove and, you know, did, I think, a phenomenal job on. When, and, and this came down to that whole debate about web forms not making it into Core because it was built for IIS and was so, you know, wrapped in the ISAPI filter world that it just didn't make sense as an abstraction away from Windows then. Well, it was actually, web forms had no dependencies on ISAPI. Okay. Uh, and so it was less, I don't think, so much around um, uh, the Windows dependency or the, there certainly wasn't an IIS dependency or a Windows dependency per se. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe like the color object or something probably, you know, did pull in system.drawing or something like right. that. Um, uh, but, you know, but I do think it was also as, as kind of updating it. Um, you know, part of the thing we said was we want to make sure .NET Framework, the original .NET Framework, continues to work, and it still does today. Right. So it's it's less around making sure that there's, um, yeah, we, we knew that there was, wasn't going to be any compatibility issues with existing apps, but there was also just trying to figure out, you know, what where is the new trends going, and and how do we support and have a clean API surface that didn't sort of give people billions of options, but rather was a little bit more prescriptive. And I think that was the other kind of thing that we were hearing at the time when we rebooted with .NET Core was in some ways, there's too many different ways of doing stuff, which makes it overwhelming. And so just being a little bit more editorial, if you will, on what we recommended was, I think, one of the other kind of thoughts the team had that I think helped. So WebAssembly aside, was anybody thinking about a Blazor server-like architecture back when the decision to not bring web forms into .NET Core was happening? Or was that kind of like, you know, we want something, but the architecture of web forms is, is, isn't working, obviously, for scale, so we need to rethink that? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know if they were at the time. I mean, I think Blazor was still... Um, being considered at the time and still being kind of conceptualized. And so I think there was sort of in theory, we could evolve Blazor to support that. But I think the catalyst of Blazor was Wasm. And Wasm only really becomes a thing in like 2015. Like Core is already well under the way, uh, is out by then, right? But Blazor is also that component model. And I wonder if if Steve 
Sanderson was and other people around him were already thinking about that component model before WASM. Because remember, Blazor Server was. came out first yeah. and had nothing to do with WASM, but it was that component model that was so nice. I think he was. I mean, it's a good one to chat with Steve. Yeah. I haven't chatted with mm-hmm. him recently about it. But uh, but I remember, you know, Blazor even in, I want to say 2011 or 2012. I mean, I mm-hmm. think some of the early, you know, ASP.NET MVC releases, I think we were, he was starting to kind of switch to focus more on Blazor, I think sometime around then, if I remember. But it's been a while, so I could also remember. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk to Steve about that for sure. Yeah, for sure. You brought a team with when you moved to azure can you even tell us the story of moving to azure like why would you do that <laughs> weren't you happy <laughs> i was yeah so satya took over the job that i i i know or i have I've had mm-hmm. for the last seven or eight years or eight years now i guess in uh i think 2011 was when he took over mm-hmm. and so and so the azure team was under him i don't know 30 days or so um into his job, he kind of stopped by my office uh, and said, "Hey, <laughs> I need some help with Azure. What do you think about you know coming over and running that?" And so, you know, I was in his division already, but I was kind of focused purely on uh, .NET and developers back then. And and so I said, "Okay." And so I, I, I think I joined Azure. I don't know in February or, or March of 2011, I think. And the ASP.NET team came with me, and so the Web Tools team came right. with me as well. So ASP.NET's always been under me for gosh, 20, almost 25 years now. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that was one, one requirement I did have, both because I knew that we would need to really kind of make a lot of progress on the developer side. And so having, you know, uh, a great developer story was there. And then also it was, it was, you know, ASP.NET's always close to my heart. And so it was probably also just felt more comfortable for me to do it. And so, and then there were a bunch of great people on the team. And so, you know, we, we kind of joined Azure then, and then we kind of spent the first year kind of rebuilding Azure and relaunched it, I think in May of 20, 2012. Yeah. Cause we did that show with you in 2011 at NDC and it was sort of off the cuff kind of thing, but you told this great story of the, and what led to what we now know as app service, but then it was sort of like the way, you know, a, a different way of approaching web development in, in Azure that you, you sent off your like leadership of the team into hotel rooms in pairs with a credit card. Yeah, that's and said, right. Can't use any of your existing accounts, get Sign a web page up. up on Azure and, and let them just see how hard it was like that. They, there was a lot of friction yeah. in that process. Yeah. The early days of Azure had lots of friction in it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I kind of did this infamous, although now I guess it's famous, but, uh, you know, offsite where I kind of, I knew it was a bit of a hodgepodge of stuff. And so there were, and there were many teams building Azure that didn't really talk at the time. And so we kind of put everyone in a room and split up into like tables, I think of like seven or eight people from each, you know, one person from each team, all these senior architects. And I kind of bought these sort of $20 gift cards from, you know, Safeway or, you know, temporary credit cards or something. I, yeah, I just sort of said, sign up and build your build an app today and, and write down what's good and what's bad. And, you know, every team kind of went through the experience and went, whoa, this is, you know, the doc sog, the SDK sog, sign up didn't work, the portal was hard, there were eight portals, you know. And so we just sort of got in the room at the end of those two days after, you know, pretty much everyone was convicted of, oh my God, we got to make some changes. And we just sort of like, I went to a whiteboard and just wrote down, here's what I think we need to do. 
and let people kind of call it. And I kind of knew ahead of time all the problems. But I'm this sure was a you'd, I'm yeah. sure you'd already done it. Right. And it's like, but there's nothing better than letting everybody have a right. customer experience. empirical experience. And so everyone kind of, you know, listed off all the problems and I kind of wrote them down. And I said, okay, so are we going to go fix this? And everyone said, sure, we should do that. And then, you know, and then the big part, of course, means that we have to stop doing stuff. And so that was, you know, the, the next day was like, okay, we all agreed this is what we need to get done. Let's, you know, we did a bunch of, you know, reorg, move people onto the stuff that mattered, stop doing the stuff that didn't matter. And then, you know, about nine or 12 months later was when we shipped kind of this new new version of Azure. And, and you know, from that point on, our growth took off and it wasn't like we fixed everything back then, no. but it, it it was the beginning of the the birth of Azure and the, the path we've been on ever since. It's nice to be right. Yeah, it's <laughs> nice to be right. We were right about most of the stuff. I'd say ninety nine percent of the stuff we wrote on that board, we were right about. Yeah. There were a few things we were wrong, but uh, um, you know, and you, you you get better every day. That's kind of my motto. Well, Scott, we're about one minute to the end here, and so uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to uh, talk about anything that we should be paying attention to coming up here, or uh, you know, what's in your inbox, something exciting coming down the pike. Well, you know, I, I guess I'd probably say just you know, first of all, huge thank you since I know there's a lot of people here on. Um, you know, from the community that are listening and just, you know, we wouldn't be here without, you know, actually the two of you. Oh, thanks. You know, and, and you know, I don't know what, what number of, uh, .NET rocks we're up to, but it must be like in the thousands or hundreds or something. Which is kind of remarkable. <laughs> so I do remember that. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's just phenomenal to see the community, both people that have been there from the beginning, uh, like you guys, but then also, you know, people that have been in the community a month. Right. Uh, but are, you know, getting value and adding value. And so it's, you know, we wouldn't be here as much as there's tech and as much as, you know, we spent a lot of time reminiscing about what we did at Microsoft. It's, you know, it really is the community that it's the reason why .NET's here. And and just want to make sure people a, know know that and that we celebrate that. And, um, you know, thank you for everything that uh, the community has done. And, uh, you know, maybe in 20 years, we'll be doing the 40th anniversary. That would be fun. <laughs> um, the geriatric wow. tour. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> who would have thought 20 years ago we'd be here today? So yeah. you never know. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, we'll have a wheelchair uh, race. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Scott. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been great. And I know you got to run. So thanks again. And, uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a tie boy. Life is hard.